Welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name is Kai, and as always, I'm joined by Katriona. How are you doing today, Kat? Hi, I'm good, thanks. And in the studio, we've got Miku. How are you? Hi, good, thank you. I'm Miku. Um, I guess I can just introduce myself now. Tell us a bit about what you do or what you're interested in. Sure, yep. So I did my PhD at the University of Melbourne, working on bacteria, all things bacteria, um, I'm currently working in science admin and I'm also t- a teacher, uh, both at the University of Melbourne and elsewhere. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hanging out with these guys. This Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And today, we're happy to have you. Happy to have you. And we're going to talk a bit about bacteria. So for a fun fact to start us off, Katriona, do you have a favorite bacteria? Um, I do. Well, it's a favorite bacteria name. So Staphylococcus. Coccus means round, like yep. a little round circle. Staphylo is like grapes. And <laughs> if you look at them under a microscope, they literally look like grapes. They are very and so, cute. Like, it's like, oh, it says what it is. And so but I it love... has nothing to do with grapes. It's not like a bacteria you find on grapes. No, no, no it's actually, well, Staphylococcus is like kind of the, the, the genus. So it's not one species. Okay. It's like a group of them. Um, but Staphylococcus aureus, Staphylococcus epidermidis, which is on our epidermis, yep. um, like they're found on us. Okay. Yeah. So you, you'd find them on us, not grapes. Well, they just look like <laughs> but grapes. But they look like grapes under the microscope. <laughs> mm. Miku, what about you? What's your favorite bacteria? Well, I don't want to spoil too much just yet because I will talk about it later, but my favorite bacteria is Coxiella burnettii, okay. which, again, I will talk about in a bit more detail a bit later. Oh, so we'll have to stay tuned for that one. Um, I don't really have a favorite bacteria. Like, it was too hard to think, but I I do think the the plushies, like the micro plushies are cool. <laughs> um, if you've ever been to like ScienceWorks gift shop or somewhere, you know, have I ever been to the ScienceWorks gift shop? <laughs> you might have been. <laughs> As someone who works at ScienceWorks, yes. Yeah. But yeah, they're real cute. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how accurate some of them are, but they look pretty, like, they're cute and, uh, yeah, pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we're going to talk a bit more about bacteria, or a lot more, in fact. But before that, let's get into some news. Catriona, what have you got here for news? Well, my news is actually kind of related to bacteria. I I was like, oh, should I stay away from it? But no, this is like too gosh darn cool that I was like, okay, this is my news. So Mount Everest attracts many climbers and all of them are leaving behind a frozen signature of microbes. Mm. Ah. So yeah, the mountaineers' boots aren't the only thing leaving footprints on (laughs) on our world's tallest mountain. Uh, So like, you know, you think about it, people are camping there, even when someone sneezes on Mount Everest, like their germs can last for centuries. So according to new University of Colorado Boulder-led research, these frozen microbes that are left behind are pretty hardy, so they can withstand harsh conditions at these high elevations and lie dormant in the soil for decades or even centuries. Wow. That is really cool. It is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Previously, scientists could kind of guess that you would have human-associated microbes there on Mount Everest, but like they couldn't conclusively prove it. because it's really hard to look at samples that are collected really high up. So this study is the first time that next-generation gene sequencing technology, yay, advances <laughs> in tech, has been used to analyze soil from like that, that high point. And it allows researchers to gain new insight into almost anything and everything that's there. So 
as I said, you know, you're not surprised to find that there are microbes left behind by humans. Um, you know, microbes are everywhere. They're, mm-hmm. they're in the air. They can blow around. Mm-hmm. And what was more impressive, however, was the fact that certain microbes that have evolved to thrive in warm, wet environments like our noses and our mouths, <laughs> they were resilient enough to survive in a dormant state in these harsh conditions. Because mm, if yeah. you think about it, it's like constantly cold. Yeah. It's also yeah. like really harsh UV because it's so it's high. Yeah. atmosphere to protect you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, like, especially if there's snow, you remember, if you go to the snow, lather up the sunscreen because it's like twice as much. <laughs> Um, so this this particular team of CU Boulder researchers, they study cold regions on Earth and, and look at the limits to essentially life in these mm. places. So they've gone from everywhere to Antarctica and the Andes and now the high Arctic and Himalayas. Um, and usually in all those places that they've looked at, they haven't found human-associated microbes to the extent that they've appeared in Mount Everest. Wow. Um, right. Yeah, because mostly you'd expect um, what we call extremophiles, so they like the extremes. Um, But like I said, there are all these new microbes that, I mean, they're not new for us, but they're new in that we've never seen them in these places before. So Staphylococcus (laughs) is actually one of them, Um, and and Streptococcus, which are also like, you know, little balls, um, little round balls, and uh, they're they're particularly dominant in, in the human mouth. So you know, it's it's really cool to to see this, and this research doesn't only highlight, you know, kind of that invisible impact of tourism. Mm, uh, yeah. Not to mention all of the human waste, yeah. both biological waste and mm. like trash left behind by by people because you just can't carry it. Mm. Um, so, like, there's this impact on on the world's highest mountain that could lead to a better understanding of environmental limits to life on Earth, you know, like yeah. with these microbes surviving. So both on Earth, but like, oh, could we, could this kind of life exist on other planets or like mm. a cold mm. moon? So it just opens up so many doors, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. No, and especially with the new technology that allows you to do mm. those sorts of tests in those sorts of really harsh environments, that's also fantastic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder, like, have they not been found before in other places because we didn't have the tech back yeah. then? Yeah. So, like, yeah, who knows what's out there? Mm. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I don't have any bacteria-related news, but I do have some news about explosives. Ooh. Oh. And <laughs> You've got some hot explosives <laughs> for us. Yeah, and we know ex- explosives can be pretty dangerous, which is a problem if you're trying to transport them around and... You know, something that people who work with explosives would really love is if they had an off switch. (laughs) It's like, turn them off. Okay, they're not going to explode. And then when we want them to, we can turn it on and make sure we're very far away from them. Yes. And yeah, accidental detonation can be deadly. So we want to find a way to prevent that. And recently, some scientists have discovered a way to turn on and off the explosives, and it's as simple as just adding water. Oh! And you might think, okay, well, if you add water to explosives, it's probably going to make it not work. Like, I don't know, think about... I've just got this image of, like, a pirate ship and the water gets into their gunpowder storage (laughs) and they're like, oh, no. Um, Yeah. And, like, in that case, water is bad. It makes Mm. the explosive not as good. But they found one where the opposite is true. Adding water makes it more explosive. And the way that they've done this is by creating um, an explosive that has little gaps inside it. 
And the reason this is important is because explosives are like they they are a chemical chain reaction. Mm. So the you know a little bit starts burning and that releases pressure and heat. And that actually it's the pressure that's most important because it compresses more explosive, which causes it to explode. And yep. that pressure wave travels outwards, creating more and more explosion as it goes. And it's this pressure wave that is sort of the difference between something exploding and something just burning. Mm. Yeah. So. They've made a, um, a material that has these tiny little holes in it. And what the holes do, and they're filled with air, they prevent this pressure wave from expanding because the, the pressure wave in the material gets to the air and then doesn't really work as well. Like it's much better at compressing a solid than the air. So when these tiny holes are full of air, it doesn't explode. Hmm. It just will, you know, burn a bit. And if you then add something into those holes, something that's not very compressible like water, yep. now the pressure wave can be transferred from one section to the other and that chain reaction can take place and it can release all of the energy and go boom. And, wow. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's pretty cool that you could just add water to, to make it more explosive. Yeah, it's like, it, it makes me think of, um, you know, all those like things that you used to buy when you were little, like the, from a science gift shop. Mm. Um, <laughs> they would be like, just add water and it like grows a crystal tree or whatever. Yeah. Like, just add water. Yeah. And explosion. <laughs> yeah. And they found like the explosion can release 50 more times more energy than just like without the water where it just burns. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you add, instead of adding water, you add a more dense fluid, which they... The one they used is called sodium polytungstate, which has tungsten in it, and that's a very like dense, heavy metal. And yeah, if you add a more dense fluid, it's even better at transferring that pressure mm-hmm. wave, and it can be ten times, oh sorry, ten percent more explosive again, which means you can actually tune how mm-hmm. explosive it is, which yeah. could be useful. And so yeah. you've got the cheap basic version, and then you've got yeah, <laughs> add, add, add the, the special liquid, and it goes a bit more boom. Mm. So, yeah, that's all we've got for news for today. We're going to jump into some bacteria science after this. And remember, you can always check out our past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. Our first song is Bacteria by Boy George and Adam Lambert. Welcome back to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus. That was Bacteria by Boy George and Adam Lambert, which is quite on topic because today we're talking all about bacteria and Mm. microbes. And our special guest today is a microbiologist, Dr. Miku Kuba. Uh, So you you studied Coxiella, right? Yes. You're going to have to tell me what that is because I don't... Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty common reaction that I've had all throughout (laughs) my studies. Um... So Coxella is a bacteria. Not many people know about it, unfortunately, because it doesn't kill a lot of people, which uh, unfortunately is what makes or breaks. Makes bacteria famous. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is terrible. Um, but I think it's really cool. I mean, our lab thought it was really cool, still thinks it's really cool. Um, so they are very common in agricultural settings. So if you're a farmer or you're a vet, you might have actually already heard about this. Um, mm. They cause a disease called Q fever, Q for query, because they actually didn't know what it was. So they just <laughs> went, Q, that'll do, query. Okay. Yeah. I have heard of Q fever, but also not enough to really know that much about it. So well, that's fine. Do you have queries about I, Q I fever? I do. <laughs> Yeah, so it's actually quite nice because it's a very Australian story. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was first discovered in 1935 uh, in Brisbane okay. um, by a bunch of scientists. Some of you, if you know scientists, um, some of you may know Frank McFarlane Burnett. Ah, yes. Um, yep. so the namesake of the Burnett Institute. Yeah, yep. so... They had an outbreak of this weird illness that was very flu-like, fevers, coughing, a lot of fatigue, and um, yeah, in, out, in, out in an abattoir in Brisbane, and they did some they did some digging to figure out what was going on, and uh, Frank McFarlane Burnett was the one who first isolated these little bugs that were in uh, the blood of those that are infected, mm. and uh, yeah, that was how it was first discovered. Hence, why Coxilla burnettii. After Frank McFarlane. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So, again, it causes flu-like symptoms. So most people don't actually realise they've got it because they'll just shrug it off as some kind of flu. Okay. Um, which is why, again, most people don't know about this bacteria. Unfortunately, though, some people get uh, chronic fatigue. So they get really, really tired. They can't work anymore. And it's quite debilitating. So yeah. these sorts of diseases we call um, diseases that cause high morbidity. Mm-hmm. They don't kill people, mm-hmm. but they cause a lot of, um, you know, they have a really bad impact on their livelihood. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, although I, I sort of did a little bit of digging and Coxiella burnettii is known for being a potential bioterrorism weapon, yes. right? But you, but you said that like, oh, yeah. It doesn't you know, kill it's, Yeah. <laughs> so how is it, how does it go from like, oh, yeah, I guess it's mostly in like cattle to, oh, gosh, bioterrorism? Yeah. So that's also a really cool story in a way. Um, the reason why it's classed as a, a bioterrorism weapon is because it's really, really infectious. Mm-hmm. You only need less than 10 bacterial cells, which you you might be able to imagine, they're tiny. Um, You only need less than 10 bacterial cells to infect humans uh, because they did some tests back in the day to figure out how little um, you needed of bacteria to actually infect humans. Sorry. They got ethics to, or I guess maybe they didn't get ethics to just infect humans. Yeah, so this was back in the 60s where they didn't really need ethics (laughs) approval like we do now. And uh, they got volunteers who didn't want to go and fight in the Vietnam War Mm. to volunteer for this. this. Yeah, so (laughs) they did a whole bunch of tests, and that's why we know that they're so infectious. They're also Mm. carried by the wind, so aerosol transmission, Mm -hmm. which means you don't need to do anything. You just have to have it dried out, just out in the wind Be and free. and yeah they've managed to infect people from a kilometers away wow which is why again it's yeah classed as a bioterrorism weapon just because it's so transmissible yeah yeah that's that's crazy um so obviously quite fascinating in terms of the stories behind it but i i, I know that it's a little bit more fascinating as microbiologists um that it's the only infectious bacteria so bacteria that infects us that actually needs the host lysosomal compartment which is quite a harsh environment so so what is what is what does that? Any of that mean yeah <laughs> what, what, what is that and <laughs> how yeah. do they replicate in a harsh environment and like why is that cool yes yeah, so <laughs> So lysosomal compartment, it's, it's just basically a fancy word to describe what is the recycling bin of our cells. So our cells, you know... They Making t- recycling fancy. Yeah, yeah. So our cells, obviously, they need to eat things. They need to recycle materials that make up the cell itself. They want to try and reuse it as much as possible. And so it ends up in this compartment inside the cell called a lysosome, and it gets broken down into essentially like the bricks, and then it gets shut it off all throughout the cell and reused for a different right. purpose. Mm-hmm. And usually that environment, I mean, normally it is always highly, highly acidic, super, super toxic. Anything that ends up in there just breaks down. Mm-hmm. And mm. 
So our cell actually uses this to try and get rid of any invading pathogens. So if it encounters something that will harm us, they'll try and put it into the lysosome to, to basically nuke it completely and get, just get rid of it. <laughs> but weirdly enough, Cox Yellow actually lets this happen. They want to end up in that recycling bin and they basically just stay dormant. They lie perfectly still until they end up in the lysosome and then they go, yes, fantastic. This is exactly where we want it to be. And then they become active and they start replicating and actually start taking over the cell from inside that bin. (laughs) From the bin out. Yeah. And again, this is the only pathogen that actively needs that environment. Everything Mm. else will try and change it. Everything else will try and get out of that that path essentially to get out of the recycling bin as much as possible, but Coxiella needs it. So is there something about it like physically that means that it isn't just like degraded when the cell's like, no, like we've got to nuke this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And obviously they they have to, Mm. but then funnily enough, we don't actually know much about it in terms of what it is that allows them to withstand such a hostile environment. Mm. So there's a lot of research going into that now. My former lab is looking into how it, essentially thrives in that environment because, again, it's so unusual. There's only one other um, pathogen that can actually, or that actually likes being in that environment as well. Uh, But it's not a bacteria. Um, It's a parasite called leishmania. Again, Mm. it's an agricultural thing, but they're the only other living thing that actually is similar in that they need that recycling bin environment. But, yeah, Coxella is the only bacteria Mm. that loves that. Wow. Acidic environment. (laughs) Um, so once once they're there and they're like trying to take over our cells and stuff, what do they eat? Like, where, where, how do they thrive? Yeah, so <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why they love that recycling bin is because the recycling bin is full of food. So <laughs> because, they're dumpster diving. Yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. It's basically just a heaven for already pre-broken down food because the yep. cell's already doing it for them. So all they have to do is just basically open their mouth and just nom <laughs> and they've got food <laughs> readily available. Yeah, it sounds hilarious because it's it's literally what they do. They love that environment because the food is right there, yeah. just within their reach. They don't even have to break it down themselves. It's already broken down by the host cell or mm. our cells. So we're yeah. doing the work for them. <laughs> does sound like a good idea. Like apart from the, you know, super acidic environment that, <laughs> you know, nukes all other bacteria, it seems like a good deal they've got going on. Yeah, mm. and in essence, because it nukes everything else, they've got first dibs. Yeah. Everything else is destroyed and they just get to sit there going, well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they basically eat anything that's in the recycling bin. But um, things that I worked on in my PhD – we saw that they like eating proteins. Uh, they like eating sugars, much like we do, which is really cool because no one else had really looked at that, especially while, while the cell was infected. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we managed to show that, yeah, they kind of just eat everything that's available, which is fair enough because you can't be picky, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> you, need to eat, you need to eat to survive, and that's exactly what they do. Speaking of uh, picky eating, um, I really don't like wheat bix um that's <laughs> fair <laughs> but i i know that during your phd so you're talking about like you know the sorts of things you were studying but i also know that like in terms of lab work you were literally feeding moth larvae with yes. wheat bix yeah so yep. what was that all about i don't eat wheat bix but clearly they I do, do eat wheat bix yes. so oh, okay. oh good. yeah yeah no i think <laughs> do you want me to come and feed you wheat bix <laughs> I have to crush it first. <laughs> it's oh, like the moths. No, no, no. I like them. still have a bit of integrity. <laughs> That's fair. No, um, yeah, the moths are a funny story. So 
moth larvae. So these are technically the full name is um, Galeria melanella uh, or uh, wax moths um, mm-hmm. is the the common name. And uh, scientists use them um, to yeah do infection studies and things because moth larvae are really easy to grow. They essentially very cheap to keep and um, breed as well. So, yeah, we had jars and jars and jars filled with moths and their larvae. (laughs) And what they ate, uh, well, because wax moths are actually parasites of of beehives. They're actually a pest species in Australia. So um, you have to be actually quite careful with um, handling them that they don't get released out into the wild. But, uh, yeah, because they are parasites of beehives, they love honey, they love... um, be uh, like wax um, or yeah. yeah honeycomb more or less, and uh, to supplement their diet because they can't just live on sugar. We added wheat bix to add that fiber component, <laughs> um, and some milk powder as well again to add some protein to their diet. And yeah, I used to just mix it all up, crush it all up, and sprinkle it into the bottom of the jars. Put a little bit of honeycomb in the center, just you know as a little treat, and yeah, put some larvae in there, and they will go bananas <laughs> on that food. And sounds yeah, that pretty was, tasty. Yeah. Catriona might disagree, but I think that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I look, it smelt like really good muesli, in all honesty, but then it also <laughs> scarred me from eating muesli for quite some time. <laughs> I still haven't had honeycomb yet. Um, I can't. Oh, really? I can't, yeah. It's that bad. It's just, yeah, after a while, it sort of becomes associated with moth food and then when you see it at the shops it's like yeah no nah, that's nah. moth food yeah that's pretty that's pretty sad like it's pretty tasty i'll take your word for it <laughs> one, one day one day i will actually try it myself <laughs> but yeah so that's the wheat bix and the the honey wheat story and moth story yeah <laughs> All right. Well, that was pretty fascinating and we'll stick around so and we'll do some more bacteria science after this And we're going to throw on a song now. This is Toxic by Britney Spears. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus on Radio Fodder. That was Toxic by Britney Spears. And we play Toxic because some bacteria can be a little (laughs) bit toxic. But, Kai, you're not talking about that, are you? What are you talking about? No, and... As we sort of found out last week, I'm a physicist and I like to insert physics into any biology topic we get on the show just because I wouldn't have anything else to talk about. So today I'm going to be talking about magnetism and bacteria. So Of course you are. Of course. Yeah. Oh, there was other ones. I could have talked about electricity and bacteria, but I thought magnetism was more interesting. So, Well, I'm intrigued. So, Yeah. Okay. So that's good. I've got the... The, the expert on board. Um, specifically, what I'm going to talk about is a class of bacteria called magnetotactic bacteria. Oh, magneto. Yeah. And they're also known as magnetosensitive bacteria. And I just think any sort of like life sensing magnetic fields is really, really cool. Mm. So yeah, I'm going to talk about bacteria. And turns out these were actually discovered separately twice. It's the first time they were discovered. They published a paper on it, maybe in like an obscure journal or something, and no one really took any notice of it. And that was oh no, that was in 1963. And then later in 1975, it got discovered again. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, "Wow, that's so cool! This is great!" And it's it's pretty funny the story of how it was discovered. So these like types of bacteria tend to live in ocean sediment. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming they just had like a big bucket of sand or something from the bottom of the ocean and they're looking at it under a microscope and they're like, 
hey, look, all these bacteria. <laughs> and they're going through trying to classify what they all are. And they noticed there was a bunch of bacteria that were all pointing in the same direction. Oh, wow. Oh. And you think about it, bacteria, they'll all be swimming around in mm. random directions. And, you, and just to see a whole bunch of them pointing in the same direction, like they're all mm. lining up, <laughs> like that'd be pretty weird. Yeah. So is this like in the layers of sediment or just like sand that's there now? I... I don't really know. I think, like, mm. the, at least on the Petri dish or whatever yeah, they were looking yeah. at, microscope slide, they just noticed that these bacteria that they've found are all lined up. Cool. Because I asked about the layers because the Earth's magnetic field, you know more about this than I do, but, but like, go on. the Earth's magnetic field, like, changes over time. And so, like, I know for other things, when you look at the layers of the ocean, things, like, flip. So I just wonder if, like, there are uh, layers of bacteria that have just, like, flipped the other way based on... Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is, like, in sort of sediment, like, rocks, mm. you can, like, it sort of bakes in the magnetic field yeah, at a certain yeah. time in geological history. Yeah. I don't think that's the case. Like, they're not okay. living in solid rock where right. it's, they're you know, the... captured the magnetic field direction. It's just in sort of sand or, yeah, okay. or whatever's on the bottom of the ocean floor. Um, but... Yeah, I think it would have been pretty, like, weird just to see them all lining up. You're like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> and eventually I figured it out. It was the Earth's magnetic field. So these tiny bacteria are like mini compass needles <laughs> all pointing to the North or South Pole. And then they're like, okay, cool. They get out, like, the scientists get a magnet and they move it around and the bacteria start following the oh, magnet. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, really fascinating. Like, that's something I'd love to play with. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. looking through the microscope, moving a magnet around and the bacteria are following it. Um, but then they're going, okay, well, how can this be? How can the bacteria sense the, the Earth's magnetic field or any magnetic fields and follow it? And it's because they have a tiny chain of what's called magnetosomes. So little, <laughs> basically little sacs inside the bacteria cell that have magnetic material. And it's often the crystal magnetite. So this is a, like it's a, it's a rock, basically. Mm. Mm -hmm. They've got tiny crystal, magnetic rock crystals inside their cells. So basically they have bling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a little chain too. This is wow. magnet bacteria magnet bling. Wow. Um, and yeah, it, it makes a chain and that chain is essentially like a compass needle or it's like a bar magnet. It's a whole bunch of little magnets stuck in a big long row. And as the earth, like as the bacteria are swimming around, the earth's magnetic field aligns that magnet up with its, with the field. So like it points in the direction of the North Pole. Hmm. Wow. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, you think about how other, like, it's just crazy how nature gets magnetic sensitivity, like, gives life the ability to sense magnetic fields. And, mm. you know, it's crazy that it, organic can have this inorganic magnetic crystal inside it. Like, yeah. it's pretty fascinating, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would love something like that when I get lost. <laughs> 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 Yeah. Please, magnetic crystal, help me. <laughs> I do remember like reading some research that they think humans might have some sort of magnetic sense, but it's oh. completely subconscious. Mm, like oh. they, they were looking at brainwave activity, and when there was like a change in magnetic field, your brain is like, oh, something changed, but it's not like we don't have any conscious, you know, recognition of this. So oh, okay. I thought that was pretty interesting. 
I don't. They don't think that anyone has any ideas of how it works. They just noticed that it, <laughs> it did kind of work, which hmm. is pretty fascinating. Uh, but anyway, back to bacteria. Um, so, yeah, it's cool that these these bacteria can sense magnetic fields, but like, why do they need to? Is the question. <laughs> and for some other animals, like for example, birds, which we think can sense magnetic fields, mm. it makes sense for navigation. You know, if they're migrating, they want to be able to know which direction to fly. Um, so why do bacteria need it? Uh, one explanation that they have come up with is that because these bacteria need a very specific amount of oxygen to survive, too much oxygen, not enough oxygen is bad. So fussy. Yeah. <laughs> and when they're living in the ocean sediments, the amount of oxygen actually changes a lot depending on like where they are. So as you go closer to the surface, it might have more oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be able to swim around and find the location that has just the right amount of oxygen for yep. them. And they think that if if you have to swim around in three dimensions, there's like lots of choices you can make about which way <laughs> to swim to think to try and find out is there more oxygen. Mm. And wouldn't it be simpler if you only had to go in one direction? Because then you could go one way and it's like, is there more oxygen here? Nah, let's go the other way. Yeah. And they think that's what the bacteria do, and the direction they choose is the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. Mm. So, um, like, at any point on the Earth, the magnetic field is pointing in a specific direction. And I think unless you get particularly unlucky and that direction happens to be, like, exactly along the boundary of the oxygenated and deoxygenated zone, you're going to find that one way has more oxygen and the other way has less. Mm -hmm. So all the bacteria have to do is line up with that magnetic field and just swim one way. And if that's no good, turn around and go the other way. So it's pretty cool. I think they say that this might give it an evolutionary advantage in these environments because they don't have to spend as much time swimming around in random directions when Mm. it's giving them like two options. You can either go... And it's literally a pool or a... No? Well, they think that maybe the the field is giving them a bit of a a pull, but it's also mainly just for aligning them along one direction and yeah. you know they can they know which way's like north and which way's south. They're not going to end up accidentally swimming east and mm. finding out that that's also the wrong direction and have to make another decision and turn around. So, I think that's pretty interesting that they yeah, maybe have this like navigational like much like birds or you know even humans using a compass it's it's navigation using the earth's magnetic field which is pretty cool mm. yeah i mean usually the only ones or the only things i've heard about navigation in bacteria is just food based they just yeah. follow the trail of food <laughs> <laughs> well in this case they're trying to follow the trail of oxygen yeah. but they're using the magnetic field to maybe help them out a little bit there or make their decision easier yeah um but to try and figure out what is going on with these magnetotactic bacteria, they thought, let's send them into space. <laughs> Bigger space. Because we can. Because <laughs> we can. Yeah, let's see, what, let's see how they go in space. <laughs> and, yeah, they're on the space shuttle mm-hmm. and the, the Russian space station Mir, and there's still magnetic fields in that point in space. Mm-hmm. So, like, they're still going to be able to, like, you would expect they'd still be able to line up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not having gravity, like probably wouldn't make that much difference, you would think, because they like they swim around in water anyway, so gravity is not that big of a deal if you're floating around all day <laughs> anyway. 
So they went, yep, let's send them into space and we'll see what happens. And it was pretty interesting what happened. It didn't, they didn't just follow the field lines. So they went, that's pretty weird. But the reason seems to be that over time in space, they lost their magnetosomes. Oh. So their little crystals of magnetic Aww. material sort of disappeared. And huh. they don't really know why that is other than that the cells sort of started to break down in yeah, a zero stress. gravity. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, like does it just go into, because presumably they're like in some sort of media or like a little bit of water, like does it just leak into the water or does it just disappear and vanish? Well, like the cells were still alive. They said after about 15 days it was completely mm. gone. They'd mm-hmm. lost their mag- magnetosomes. They couldn't sense magnetic fields anymore. And yeah, they just attributed that to just cell degradation in space. Like Mm. we know this happens in humans as well. And yeah, so a bit inconclusive with the results. I don't really know why that was, but it was a pretty cool experiment, I reckon. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be curious to see if the cells are stressed or not in any way and whether they're just dumping cargo because they can't cope. Maybe. That Mm. could be something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything's stressed out in space, yeah. except tardigrades. Tardigrades are just like <laughs> invincible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so these bacteria clearly love magnets. <laughs> and uh, speaking of magnets, this is the song Magnets by Disclosure and Lord. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was Magnets by Disclosure and Lord, and today we're talking all about bacteria. Katriona, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to, you know, I I think bacteria sometimes get a little bit of a bad rap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can agree with that. (laughs) So I want to talk about some bacteria that, like, can do their part to help us in society. Okay. (laughs) Um, So the first one I want to talk about is actually just one specific type of bacteria um, that can help us produce energy. Mm. So it might sound surprising, but when times are tough and there's no other food available, some soil bacteria can consume traces of hydrogen in the air as an energy source. Um, In fact, bacteria remove a staggering 70 million tonnes of hydrogen yearly from the atmosphere, and that's a process that literally shapes the composition of the air that we breathe. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Um, maybe that's why there isn't much air in, oh, much, much air. No, thankfully there's a lot of air, but there's not much (laughs) Much hydrogen hydrogen. in in the air. Um, But in a paper published earlier this month, Monash University researchers have isolated an enzyme that enables some bacteria to consume hydrogen and then they can extract the energy from it and Mm. they can produce an electric current. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that they, they can produce that electric current like directly even when exposed to minute amounts of hydrogen. Cool. Yeah, right? Really cool because, <laughs> I mean, if we could harness this, yeah, that yeah. has considerable potential to power maybe small but <laughs> sustainable <laughs> yeah. air-powered devices in the future. Um, air power, that just makes me think of like Avatar Lost Airbender. <laughs> <laughs> um, so hydrogen... It's the simplest molecule and made of two positively charged protons held together by a bond formed by two negatively charged electrons, if you're talking about like the hydrogen in the air. Mm -hmm. And an enzyme made by the particular soil bacterium, Mycobacterium smegmatis, (laughs) breaks this bond. So the protons part ways, (laughs) bye-bye, and the electrons are released. So in these bacteria, 
the free electrons can then flow, like you can direct them into a complex circuit and inside the actual bacteria, it, it goes into the circuit called the electron transport chain, which if you've ever done biology, you would have mm. had to talk about cellular metabolism. Yep. <laughs> and the electron transport chain is what even our cells use to, to get our energy. So we convert glucose into, mm. into energy via the electron transport chain if we've got enough mm. oxygen. And so that's what these cells are doing too, except the electrons, instead of coming from sugar, is coming from hydrogen. So electricity itself is literally made of flowing electrons, meaning that this enzyme that the bacteria use could be directly like converting hydrogen into an electric current if yeah. we tap into that. Mm. So what happened when the researchers isolated the bacteria, they, they found that this particular enzyme, it's called hydrogenase because it breaks down <laughs> hydrogen. Um, it can consume hydrogen at concentrations far lower than even the tiny traces that are in air. And that concentration is super small. So I said mm. that there's not much hydrogen in air. Um, if you want a numerical number on it, it, hydrogen represents only 0.00005% of the atmosphere. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's small. But, you know, this enzyme, it can do it. It's like, oh, there's wow. not much here, but I can take this hydrogen. And in fact, the enzyme still consumed like little whiffs of hydrogen that are too faint to even be detected by their <laughs> gas chromatograph. Oh, wow. So like, even their equipment couldn't yeah. detect the hydrogen was there, but the enzyme's like, yeah, no, nah, I got this. <laughs> wow. Um, so... They, they also found, which is pretty cool, that this enzyme is entirely uninhibited by oxygen, which isn't usually seen for other uh, enzymes that consume hydrogen. So that was a big problem. They were thinking, mm. oh, no, if we want to take this into like the real world, um, you know, we're going to have to worry about oxygen because yep. usually oxygen gets in the way. Mm. But in this case, it doesn't seem like oxygen is getting in the way. Hmm. So... Yeah, it's it's amazing that it, this can now like potentially power an electric circuit, but of course, you know, this enzyme that could power the devices of tomorrow, it's still early. Like it'd need to be scaled <laughs> yeah. up and um they need to be able to produce like kilograms of the stuff whereas like right now they're working in like micro amounts. Mm. Um but you know, it's it's promising. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is bioremediation, which is more a field rather than talking about a yep. specific bacterium. Um, but if you think about it, really, you know, the environment is constantly being bombarded with contaminants. <laughs> <laughs> We've got like pollutants everywhere on the yep. on the planet. And there are over three million contaminated sites scattered across the globe. And that's an underestimate. Wow. Um, and most of them remain untreated. And so bioremediation is a really, really powerful thing that maybe we can use to help clean up these sites. So bioremediation is the field that takes naturally occurring organisms, whether it's plant, fungi, or mainly what people use is bacteria. Okay. And they break down the contaminants into non-harmful products. And the great thing is bacteria work 24-7 yeah. for free. <laughs> <laughs> so an estimated 5 million trillion trillion bacteria live on the planet. Um, having evolved over billions of years, they've evolved to use anything at their disposal mm. on Earth as nutrients to survive and thrive. And that includes our waste. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so one third of current bioremediation products currently target petroleum waste because microbes have lived side by side <laughs> crude oil for so, so yeah, long. Okay. Mm. 
So using native microbes that already exist in the environment, some species can use the carbon from oil to grow and often convert toxic pollutants into harmless things like water and carbon dioxide. So oh. carbon dioxide mainly like given that it's carbon to carbon. Yeah. So um, uh, there's one particular research group that I know of, um, Professor Andy Ball and his students, who essentially they keep just taking like a little cocktail of microbes, add it to some contaminated product (laughs) and then grow it in a flask. And then they're able to like scale up this massive bioremediation project. So, for example, um, one student of, of Andy's took like a little bit of microbes, grew it with some waste oil. And then by the end of that student's PhD, they were like cleaning up a hundred, a thousand cubic meters of soil. So wow. essentially, you're just like hoping for the best. Like you put all these microbes in there, and you're like, okay, which ones are going to feed off this crude oil? <laughs> because the ones that will feed off the crude oil, they grow yep. and they multiply. Yeah. And so then you've got like this army of bacteria at your disposal that are like, oh yeah, we love this crude oil yeah. stuff. And yeah. so you just like put them in with the soil, and they eat up the crude oil. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing, and it works for groundwater as well. So they had a project where um, they took a little bit of microbes, put it in with some contaminated groundwater, and then scaled the project up, cleaning 200,000 litres of contaminated water at a petroleum facility in oh, Singapore. Wow. Yeah, wow. so it's pretty amazing stuff. Like bacteria, <laughs> pretty powerful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I might be a little bit biased, but I've always thought so. <laughs> as the microbiologist. <laughs> Um, But maybe, Miku, we could get your input here as well, because the last thing I want to talk about is a little bit closer to home to the two of us. So, you know, we work in a lab in in biomed and uh, E. coli and bacteria Mm. like E. coli, they're a great tool in biomedical research. So E. coli is a specific bacterium that's an incredibly versatile tool for especially genetic engineers. Mm. Um, and, And so because of that, it's just been instrumental in producing this massive array of medicines and and therapeutics and technologies. So E. coli, essentially one bacterium species, but in the lab, it it can grow all sorts of proteins if you make it do so. Mm. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. And it's incredible because they divide once every 20 minutes. They give you a high yield. They're easy to handle. They have very simple media. They're like Mm. very easy to grow. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) And so essentially they they become factories. You you give it a gene and you're like, here are the instructions. Please make this for me. (laughs) And it will do it for you. Like there's no pushback. (laughs) No. Um, So... Maybe you, you've done it with, with different things, and, and I've certainly done it with different things as well, to either get like lots and lots of DNA, because mm. you just put mm. the gene in there, and it makes lots and lots of copies of the DNA for you, or you give it instructions to make proteins, and it makes lots of the proteins for you. <laughs> um, but one thing that's been really, really handy that it, it does that for is insulin. Right. So for, for many years, there actually wasn't a treatment for diabetes, but, but once people finally realized, okay, insulin is is the answer. We need yep. to be giving people insulin and it not just once. Like they need a constant mm. supply of insulin. Mm. Um, people were, well, scientists were taking insulin from cattle and pigs. Yeah. Like, so okay. the, yeah. They were, you know, that's all they could do. They were taking it from animals. Yeah. Um, and that saved millions of lives, but it wasn't perfect because, one, you have to take it from animals. Um, and, and, two, it caused allergic reactions in many patients because yeah. it's their insulin. Like, it's it's the cattle it's or the pig, pig insulin. insulin. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's not quite human insulin. So the first genetically engineered synthetic human insulin was produced in 1978 using E. coli. Wow. Hmm. So... <laughs> 
what they were doing was essentially you give the genetic instructions to the E. coli, say, please make me some insulin, <laughs> not even please, and it does it for you. Um, and and then in 1982, they started to sell the first commercially available biosynthetic human insulin under the brand name Humalin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's a really inexpensive way to create insulin. And because it's so inexpensive, I don't understand, especially like in the US, why insulin is so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I could rant about that for, you know, ages. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, ha- have you used E. coli or, or other bacteria much in the lab to like do your bidding? Oh, de- <laughs> definitely. Oh, well, I was going to say definitely E. coli, definitely Coxiella. Um, mm. Yeah, so I've killed billions and billions and billions upon cells <laughs> of uh, E. coli and Coxiella both, which still haunts me to this day. Uh, <laughs> but no, they are very, very useful because if you want a lot of DNA or if you want a lot of protein in a very short amount of time, E. coli will make it for you overnight. Mm. And mm-hmm. you can use that to then do other experiments as well. So they're a great tool which sounds harsh in a way. <laughs> and, um, they're, they're just bacteria. They're, they're a great experimental tool <laughs> to, yeah, study all sorts of different fields that don't necessarily relate to bacteria. I mean, I worked on bacteria, but Kat, you didn't, you weren't in bacteriology. You no, were, no, but I, I still use bacteria yeah, as a exactly. tool. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I'm like, I want this DNA. So yeah. <laughs> E. coli, do it. Um, but I, I think, you know, what's really, really cool is that you can take different tools in with you. So, you know, you might give the bacteria instructions to make a particular protein or a particular DNA. But if you want to be able to, you know, pick out the bacteria that actually are making what you want it to mm-hmm. make, there are all sorts of like reporters and things like that, that like some reporters are GFP, so green fluorescent protein. <laughs> and so if you like attach insulin, for example, yeah. to GFP, it means that, oh, okay, any bacterium that's actually making the insulin that I want it to be making is also going to glow green <laughs> under UV light. So yeah. like you can easily pick them out yeah. like visually or um, you can like add antibiotics and things like that uh, or antibiotic resistance, I should say, so mm. that like if you're growing the bacterium or all the bacteria in, in like some sort of media that has the antibiotic, the only bacteria that are going to grow are the ones that have the instructions that you want. Hmm. So, like, it's a really great way to, like, select for, like, you can just mix and match all these different genes and get bacteria to do your thing. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And they're all just naturally occurring things that we're just sort of using to our advantage in a way, but, again, to advance our understanding of different things. Yeah. So, in summary, bacteria are tools. Wow. And it's pretty cool to find out that, like, E. coli is great you know, useful tool and not just something that gives you upset stomach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, definitely not just something that is in the tummy. Yeah, very cool. Well, that's all the time we've got for talking about bacteria on today's episode. Thank you, Miku, for coming on. It was good to have you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, remember, you can catch all our past episodes wherever you get your podcasts and you know, always follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. And to finish us up, we've got one last song. This is Numb Little Bug by M. Behold. <laughs>